You're listening to Think Big, Episode 6. Hello, Big Thinkers, and welcome to Episode 6 of Think Big. I'm your host, Tara Cull, neuro-language coach, landscape architect, and English teacher, and I'm somebody dedicated to helping people in the built design profession who speak English as a second or a third language to build outstanding communication skills. You can learn more about my coaching programs and courses at archieenglish.com. The purpose of the podcast is to share stories from built design professionals and various related disciplines, but it's also about learning more about how we communicate and how we do it better how we can do it better. I've had the absolute pleasure during the last few months of speaking to some inspiring professionals and after each conversation I get excited about what we've talked about and I want to share it with you straight away but I know that I have to keep telling myself it's a marathon and it's not a sprint because this is exactly what I tell everyone that I work with. It's a marathon not a sprint. And I need to practice what I preach, right? Now, the response to my first five episodes has been overwhelmingly positive, And I wanted to take the chance to say thank you to everyone who sent me a message, who have encouraged me to keep going. It really helps me to feel motivated to keep going. And of course, I just feel like I want to share so much with you. In today's episode, I speak to Australian building designer, James Goodlett from Alter Eco in Melbourne, Australia. I'm currently working with him and his team to design, document and execute the landscape design for two of their projects. So I thought it would be the perfect opportunity to take advantage of this and share more about what they do and share more about his story. So James founded Alter Eco in 2006 and he has grown his practice through 12 years of building and design services. He comes from four generations of builders And so he has sound knowledge of construction and then also understanding traditional and innovative building methods. And one of those innovations in design is his dedication to become Passive House certified. And he's passionate about creating sustainable homes for his clients. Every one of Alter Eco's projects is unique and has different opportunities and constraints specific to the site, the location and the client's needs. I think it's also important to mention at this point that Passive House isn't the only way to achieve optimal star ratings, but it is a tool. Now, if you're interested in learning more about how different practices approach energy efficiency and star ratings, I think it's a great conversation starter to ask them about how they do it and what they do. In today's episode, I wanted to know more from James about how he works with clients to educate them and to communicate his ideas with them about sustainability and what that means for their projects. In the interview, we discuss what Passive House is and how he uses it as a tool, how he communicates responsible design choices to the client, some of the challenges that he faces, and we also talk about different drawing apps and software programs that he's been trying and using with his clients. At the end of the episode, I also asked James to give his top tips for young architects and designers, and he gave me some great, excellent advice about cover letters and applying for practices that share your common values. 
And I think it's particularly relevant when you're applying for a practice like Alter Eco, who've done the work to understand their values and what they stand for. It's really important to do your research to understand where they come from and what they stand for so that you know if your values align with theirs. So before we get into the interview today, I wanted to also share more about Passive House with you. I discussed Passive House briefly with James, but I was more interested in diving deeper into how he communicates with the clients. So I wanted to give you a bit more background information into the concepts of Passive House before we get into the interview. Importantly, Alter Eco adopt an efficiency first approach, which means they are designing buildings that are highly insulated and airtight, and they rely on very little heating and cooling to make the house comfortable. So they adopt an efficiency first approach. If you'd like to know more about James and his practice, you'll find links to his website and blog, as well as all the images that we discussed uh, from the buildings that we discussed in today's episode page. So let's jump into the episode. So let's firstly talk about the language of passive house. Now, passive house is not to be confused with passive design or passive solar design. Passive house is a building standard that was developed in Germany. And the way that it works is it's an energy efficient, comfortable and affordable way of designing a house. It's a specific way of designing and building a new or a renovated home so that it meets certain requirements that lower its energy use and it improves the health and the well-being of the house's occupants. But it's not the only way that you can achieve this. But I wanted to mention this because this is what James and his team adopts as a tool. In 2019, James and his team at Alter Eco took a stance. They drew a line in the sand because they wanted to commit their efforts to work with like-minded clients and builders so that they could achieve the best possible outcome for their clients. So he also worked towards passive house certification. He did a two-week intense training course, which was a massive challenge for James, but he documented everything that he learnt during the training course on his blog. So I put a link to this in the show notes. I highly recommend going to have a look at it and to see all the things that he learnt during the training course. What is Passive House in more detail? So let's have a look at the principles behind Passive House. In essence, it's striving to create a building that is healthy and comfortable. So Passive House allows for space heating and cooling related energy savings of up to 90% compared with typical existing buildings and over 75% compared to average new builds. So a Passive House will need to consider good insulation So passive houses are praised for their high level of comfort that they offer. The internal surface temperatures vary little from indoor air temperatures and even in the face of extreme outdoor temperatures. They also include no air leakages and no thermal bridges where the warmth can easily travel through the walls to the outside of the building. They also include proper windows with triple pane glass So triple pane glass windows are the most advanced windows that you can get on the market today. And of course, they're made with three panes of glass. So as with new double pane window installations, each of the three panes has a spacer around the edge to give them a uniform space between the layers. So this extra layer makes it more difficult for heat to escape and it allows you to 
maintain the temperature in your home. A passive house will also consider proper orientation to make the most of the sun. So passive houses make efficient use of the sun, internal heat sources and heat recovery, rendering conventional heating systems really unnecessary even throughout the coldest of winters. And then during the warmer months, passive houses make use of passive cooling techniques, such as strategic shading to keep the house comfortable and cool. Passive houses also include a heat recovery ventilation system. So for Alter Eco, air quality is their highest priority because this is particularly relevant because in Melbourne's inner west where they work and also where I used to live, there are abnormally high cases of asthma and, and respiratory system disease. So one of the key learnings from James's passive house journey is the ability to take control of the indoor environment, regardless of the air quality outdoors. So in return, the clients that they work with get to live in a healthy house with healthy air and to be comfortable. So to achieve that, they create an environment that is separate from external influences by insulating the shell and then eliminating gaps and drafts. For air quality control, they introduce a mechanical heat recovery ventilation system that brings in fresh filtered air, free from pollutants, and then it extracts the stale air. So it also contributes to moisture control and a balanced temperature throughout the home. Now, these modern automated systems are intelligent pieces of engineering they run on very little energy and the heat recovery element ensures that minimal energy or the temperature is lost in the exchange of air. A little more about passive houses around the world. So the, the passive house concept, it remains the same for all of the world's climates, as does all of the mechanics and the science behind it. But while the principles remain the same across the world, the details have to be adapted to specific climates. So it will change depending on where it has been implemented. So if you want to know more about what Passive House is, I've also included a short video in the episode notes about what Passive House is. And because I also love to test your vocabulary and help you build it, I've also turned it into an interactive video if you want to test yourself. I also highly recommend doing your own research about Passive House and what are some of the other sustainability rating tools that other architects use. This is arguably one of the most difficult things for a lot of the clients that I work with because every country and every state sometimes in different countries will use different sustainability rating tools. So the best thing that you can do is to, if you're working in practice, to ask what sort of tools that you use for sustainability ratings or to if you're looking for a job that could be even a question that you could ask in an interview what sorts of sustainability rating tools do you use can you tell me more about how you adopt a sustainable method or a sustainable practice so without further ado let's get into the interview with James today Hi, James. Nice to have you here. I've been very excited to have this conversation with you today. So we have done some work together before in the past. I've been following your work for quite some time. So for those who don't know much about you and your practice, could you tell us a little bit more about what Alter Eco means and where it started and where you are now? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Tara. Good to be here. Yeah, it's uh, uh, Alter Eco 
it all started um oh i started like most people do as a sole trader going uh out on their own oh it's 13 years ago now so um yeah that was quite uh easy at, at the time like i actually designed a house for my parents and while i was working at another firm i uh, you know finished that and started building the house with my parents my, my dad's a builder and um and i've got a lot of family in the building industry so i was you know aiming at learning uh, to get some hands-on skills and really um yeah get some more understanding and experiment with a few different things as well and yeah, that was that was really good. And then just by the end of that sort of build, I was full time on the dining table, just doing, um, you know, mostly it was drafting work or, or or some design, small design stuff. And then that evolved, and um, yeah, just built some relationships and got some repeat work. And then I couldn't handle it. Got uh, <laughs> I got the first person on board, and um, and then it sort of snowballed from there. So. Yeah, I guess when I started, I, I I had the ambitions to be, you know, quite consciously a sustainable designer. But I guess just by word of mouth and where I got the work from, that wasn't really, didn't really happen, to be honest. You know, it wasn't really enforced. And I always struggled with the conversation around approaching sustainability and having some kind of a, um, you know, ethical conscious towards the um the building's performance and and even you know embodied energy and where our materials come from and that sort of stuff so and it's only really been in the last few years where i've decided that there's only so much work that we can do there's a lot of work that's out there and it's um we're lucky in australia to have you know a consistently booming industry where there's always work that we've decided that we just want to work on with with clients who are motivated to build high-performing, you know, sustainable houses. And, you know, we're schooled up on that. We love that and we're passionate about it. So we're really trying to find those kind of clients and align with them. At the end of the day, we're designing a house for them to live in. That's it. that's all we do. We, we only do residential work. We're quite, you know, passionate about about that and working closely with our clients and and as i was saying you know once we invest some time into them and and you know i guess impart some of our knowledge on on sustainability measures and you know the budget and as well as your interior design and that sort of stuff yeah we just feel we get the most out of the out of the project i'm not having to pitch or sell being a sustainable designer to somebody they just know that that's what they're getting in for and and they're they're on board with it I think there's been a change anyway in the last few years in in general with in the market there's quite a conscious shift towards people being more motivated to towards performance and and healthy like we talk a lot about how um indoor air quality is is uh quite a quite a high priority and um anyone who's actually spent some time in Australia living in a house over here would probably know that they're not very comfortable um, there. You know, you'd think that we've got a climate that, that's quite conducive to living in a tent, but it's not really enjoyable. Um, <laughs> do you predominantly work with houses where they're renovated or do you work with new builds or could you describe the, the type of style of architecture that you generally work with? Yeah, it's interesting. I guess if we... If we have a clean approach, like if we have a, a clean site and we're doing a new build, yeah, I guess we're quite uh, quite modern in our in our approach and and I guess a little bit earthy in our materials. 
I also just having a background in in construction don't really believe that we need to make things more complex than they need to be. I think we need the attention to detail, but I just don't think, you know, I'm not trying to create anything particularly outlandish and, and challenge a builder too much because let's be honest, there's only so much money that, that our clients have and can put towards a project and I prefer to prefer them to spend it um, in improving the building envelope rather than showing off to their to their mates and keeping up with the Joneses, if you know what I mean. I saw a I saw a comment on your Instagram recently about sustainability and how sustainability or greenwashing has become such a buzz word. And then someone made a comment yeah. on there saying instead of calling it uh, sustainable design, we call it responsible design. Yeah, that actually makes. I must have gone to bed by then. I didn't follow that part of the, <laughs> the thread. Um, it was. It, I, I thought it was a great example of not using the word sustainability too much. It's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a member here of um, the the well, what was the BDAV? It's now Design Matters, and it's um, but that I guess that's the organisation that I'm affiliated with here. And um, for so long, they've been, you know, I guess. Uh, not so much banging the drum, but I guess all of the developmental training that they do, it's mainly focused on energy and performance and, and improving the quality of the buildings um, that we have in Australia. But I think you're right, you know, it's, it's, it's become, yeah, I guess what I was getting to is they have awards every year and this year they're finally introducing, it's mandatory to have some kind of um, sustainable hopefully it's not a spin on it but you know some sustainable grounds and outcomes otherwise you don't qualify to go in the entry i think that's a really clear step in the right direction that it that yeah like you said it's responsible and it it's all of our responsibility to do what we can to to improve the industry mm. so what are some of those responsible um things that you would implement into a design yeah i guess um australia's had some kind of energy mandate on heating and cooling and it's been around for 12 years let's say but they haven't updated it since and technology's changed and evolved so much um so that's i think there's a revision of this to, due to come out next year but to be honest it's quite easy to achieve that and if you can't even achieve that there's something wrong but um with with the way you're designing and and, and so forth but um the passive house is a is is i guess well, it's a lot. It's going to be a lot more common in Europe than it is here, and it's 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 growing here, and it's actually very um, very applicable in this climate as well. Um, but but to me, that's just a tool to ensure that we're we're designing something that can minimize the overall energy consumption and generate also you know the right amount of energy to to balance that out and and you know be net zero. Um, so, yeah, I think to me, when we're signing on clients, we're not necessarily saying, hey, we're going to do passive house because to me, we're probably still going to use it as a tool, but we're going to educate them along the way. And we do have a growing market of products that are here in Australia that are available, well, that we would use, I guess, in, in, in the composition of a, of a passive house. But we are still quite dependent on um, better technology from Europe as well. And that's just coming at an expense. And at the moment in this pandemic, it's coming at a delay as well. So it's make, making sure you're considering all those things 
in all of your projects, I guess, without saying this is going to be a passive. Yeah, design. that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. So we're, uh, let's use glazing as an example, right? So the, the, the companies that are providing glazing have to, you know, uh, share the information about the performance, like the U values and so forth of the of their components, so that you can calculate um, um, how well that window performs, and we can calculate, compare it against another. And and finally, we've got on the market here a couple of brands that are actually bringing out passive house certified windows in Australia. So we're able to go, all right, well, I can get these built in twelve weeks, and I can compare it to the ones that I can get from Europe, and you know, it's it's a factor now. So. Mm. Um, yeah, that's one of the things, but, um, but I think by and large, it's really important just to talk about building quality and longevity. So, um, it probably happens everywhere in the world, but here there's, there's a massive skew from project homes. I'm not sure what, what, you know, the mass produced kind of homes that are here and the quality and speed that they're knocked up in versus something that we would design a detail. And so, um, there's a lot more components and elements into a wall build-up, for example, or um, the way we detail certain junctions here um, compared to those houses. So when you work on a renovation home, so there's a lot yep. of uh, yep. Victorian-style houses in Yarraville and Seddon around where you practice. Yep. What are some of the challenges that you come across with having to make sure that you're implementing passive design but also responsible design as well yeah it's a good question there is so many more challenges when renovating yeah i imagine <laughs> um and and especially i mean dealing or you know around here we're dealing with quite tight and compact sites for what what we can compare ourselves with in in australia and that has its own kind of challenges especially when we have a building code that's just generalized across the board across the country we have a lot of challenges the first part to me is to find out what's you know understand what's essential that we need to ta- to keep and maintain and um and, and what can we forego because mostly buildings will be in some form of decay and, and to be honest a lot of that stuff is better off being replaced but yeah i think it's it's really important to maintain that streetscape and um and and keep that neighborhood character fairly consistent which is quite challenging because we are uh, seeing a lot more diverse building typologies i guess throughout our suburbs at the moment but in inner melbourne where we're doing a lot of the renovations it's pretty pretty integral you know there's normally heritage overlays that are in in these inner urban pockets we're doing what we can to restore those parts of the building and um seeing what can be removed Mm. have you got any examples that you can like off the top of your head that you could point people towards so if we give them a link to your website are there some examples where you've done the renovation and they can see some of the the challenges that you've come across and to try and marry the two together i guess yeah oh there's a couple that come to mind that we haven't actually photographed yet um i think there's the mavis house that's on the website which is a, a renovation and extension uh so is the, the the chatfield house um but in the scheme of things they were actually pretty easy because there was good side access and, and a fair bit of room um the one that's on there that's called beavers that was quite interesting because 
It was it was a single fronted brick terrace. It was meant to have a matching pair next to it, but it never happened. So the, um, the owners of this house had this long strip of land next to them. So so I guess we we added a couple of pavilions to this and still tried to maximize maximize our orientation and um, and create a bit of a courtyard space in the middle. So um, that one was pretty unique and. Yeah, a bit of a discovery along the way. Once, once, once we sunk our teeth into it, a lot of work needed to happen to the original brickwork. There was quite a bit of underpinning required and things like that. So that one was challenging, but nothing compares to the one that I'm working on at the moment, which uh, you've had a hand in uh, in helping get this one, the one in Western Street. That's had its challenges. It it is paired up with another building, um, and it's challenging site access. Very challenging builder to work with. They're um, they're a larger crew and there's a turnover of staff. So this relearning of the project um, has been quite painful, to be honest. You get that and you can't anticipate that. Um, so we've worked through it. Yeah, it seems like it's been a long process, but hopefully we're getting towards the end, right? I've seen some photos. It's We're getting, we're getting there. The landscape has been sending me some photos, so it's looking good. And I've been seeing some of the, the house, so... I'm excited to see these internal courtyards and the backyard. It's going to be great. So hopefully when you see it, you can send me some photos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so I guess just looping back to the, to the passive house stuff, um, I still think there's a lot of education within the general population here that they need to understand, yeah, the differences in, in our approaches to the way we can um, design um, and, and create high-performing homes. Uh, it's an ongoing, and this is why we do more social media these days. It's just that education around it as well. Um, yeah, I think that's a big part of it, isn't it? The social media aspect. Yeah. yeah. You were talking about some of the materials that you, you were using as being earthy. So what are some of the materials that you you would use? I guess timber and more natural colours? I'm really um, more about that, trying to have our buildings just sit in our environment and not really stand out too much and, um, and be too loud. So, yeah, quite conscious of, I guess, more about also a representation of who who our clients are and, you know, and, and what I guess in Australia, there's a bit of a vernacular as well with the use of, you know, corrugated metal and things like that. So it's not necessarily earthy, but it's quite common in, you know, rural or, you know, um, semi-rural kind of setting. And so um, emulating some of those materials and forms is quite, quite fun as well. Yeah, I guess it's important to take into consideration, as you say, the vernacular of the of the context and and to understand the architecture of the surrounding area. Thinking about the clients too, what are some of the things that you find are really important when it comes to explaining designs to clients? Yeah, so look, I really like honesty and 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 a client that's not afraid to share their mind because we definitely don't pitch or try and sell a concept to to a client and and we start with really limited information and we're really trying to learn um about our clients um our initial brief that we that we request from a client um it's quite detailed and it and it forces some thought and on how they live and so forth so um we're really digging into i guess the the socioeconomics of their family and or if it's a family or how they live and what are their habits and hobbies and um and some of those things so um yeah so i guess the 
design to me really does just quite evolve you know it's we don't you know we're we're really loosely starting with those flow diagrams of how things connect and really trying to get an understanding of that and then it shapes itself from from that point of view so to me they're really seeing that evolution through those sketches as they evolve and then as it goes into CAD Archicad we use um as and when we we refine that um, design development so our first renders are just sort of a clay model kind of uh white render um and then you know then we start to embellish them with color we don't want to give them too much information because it's always you know distractions with some of that sort of stuff um and you know like, why is that brick i didn't want brick there or whatever it might be but yeah so we're really trying to take them on that journey and just um keep them focused and keep the blinkers on so that they're they've got their intention on the right part of the project and not get, and also not getting too excited about other things that are just not even important right now yeah but the key to it is their ability to say nah or yeah that it's so it, it's really critical that we just had a meeting yesterday it was our first design meeting with this client and she said you know what james i just really don't like that i can't picture that being you know on on my block of land i'm like cool <laughs> at least we know now have a look at this one what do you think of this i guess that's important to create that space where they can say no isn't it yeah create the space and then also just dig into it as a why as well like you know un- understanding of that just saved us so much time going off in a tangent in the wrong direction so um i guess that initial stage too where you do those flow diagrams are a good sort of bringing the client into the process before they get too carried away and then the next logical step would be more detail my next question was going to be about have you ever introduced an idea where you had to persuade somebody you have given me an example but do you have any other examples where you had this idea that was really good and you had to persuade somebody so it could be the client the builder anyone it can be quite challenging um but at the end of the day you know i can, I can only lead a horse to water right so um I'm, I'm not gonna bash my head against a wall one way or another and yeah if someone's really resistant to something they must have a reason for it like there's got to be something underlying there so to me trying to find what, out what that is and probably educating them around that particular issue is is as far as I would probably go with it and if they were still stuck on it. Yeah, so you're asking them why and why and why so that you understand the deep reason for that problem. Yeah. I like that. I like that yeah. that process. I've been talking to a, some of my students recently about using the five whys method, which was developed by yeah. Sakichi Toyota. So it sounds like you're implementing it. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever gone that far down, but yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I, know, I've, I have yeah. heard of that. Um, it is. It, it really gets to the underlying issue. Going back to speaking to the client and communication, what do you think is the most important thing when you're explaining things to clients? I, I like what you're saying about don't give them too much information because they can get carried away. Or I think honesty is the key to it. Once you get to know a client, um, it's 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 still really important that um, the dialogue is open and honest. You know, um, we're all human. Something's going to go wrong. Um, so I just think sharing that that level of honesty then goes both ways, and we'll get that back out of them as well. There's no point doing what we're doing if we don't enjoy it. <laughs> mm, I think that's a great 
a great piece of advice, to be honest. And I mean, there can be some big, tough things that you have to explain to a client, like it's, you know, the tenders have come back and they're way over budget and now we have to figure something out. So I think you're right. Being honest and trying to get the best outcome that you can is super important. Well, there's that other saying, isn't it? The best conversations are the toughest ones to have. So um, sometimes you're better off just jump in the deep end and just, (laughs) yeah, get on, get on with it and don't, yeah, don't dance around the topic. Oh, like, okay, um, the topic of money, you know, budget or our fees or whatever it might be. It's not easy talking about money, but at the end of the day, we need to be compensated for what we're doing. So you just have to have that conversation and, and keep revisiting it, especially if, especially if there's scope creep or we deviate from the initial plan. But then also our clients, um, you know, don't have an infinite amount of money for a budget. Every for a project they've everybody's got a budget so i dig really deep early on in a project i think it's really important to understand what they would like to spend and then i think it's even more important to know when the tipping point is so and to me the gap between those two is quite critical so if somebody is trying to leverage as much as they can to take them right up to that threshold i'm really nervous because um, it's really easy to tip over the top of a tipping point. So I think we need to just pull in the reins a bit. It's also, it's quite challenging for us because the goalposts are continually moving as um, material prices are constantly going up. Right now there's a timber shortage in Australia, so there's scarcity and price going up as well. There's, um, yeah, there's so many things at play with you know inflation and so forth. And, and we might be borrowing our knowledge off a project that's already two years out of date by the time it gets built. So that's a challenge, but I think we need to take the money seriously. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's really important to have those kind of conversations early on. Mm, I think it's really important that you're talking about that, knowing what they're, they're the gap is between their budget and the tipping point. And that's yeah. something that I often found working as a landscape architect is you, a client will tell you their budget, but actually they do have the ability to stretch it. And if you don't have that conversation with them in the beginning, that like what you're saying about materials, the cost of materials changing, inflation and scarcity, all yeah. those sorts of things can have an impact. And we're not mind readers. We don't know, although Absolutely. we have an idea of what might come back in the tender, we we don't actually yep. know because it can yep. change from from year to year. So I think that's Absolutely. such an important aspect of of communication with a client is knowing what their tipping point is. What si- what kinds of tools and software do you use to document your projects and and also communicate it to the clients? You know, our primary tool is is Archicad. I still think those early sca- stages sketching is the best. Um, I've been using an iPad a lot over the last couple of years. That's been that's that's how, that's actually been quite useful, um, especially in the last twelve months. Just being, you know, we're working remote quite often, and um, and we actually haven't gone back to a normal office sort of scenario yet. Um, even though we're able to, where we've found that working away from the office maybe two to three days a week is good to get some deep work going and um and then we all plan to get into the office a couple of days a week and try and overlap that and get get a few people together and and that's how you collaborate the best or 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 learn some of the some of the other little bits and pieces that you just wouldn't um have if someone just didn't come and pass you and 
say, hey, what are you up to? And, you know, give you a few tips that whether it's ArchiCAD or whatever it might be, I just think those those conversations and, and learnings are, are harder to have when we're totally remote. So at the moment, we're just experimenting a bit, Tara, on how, how flexible to be around that. Everything's obviously changed from a, from a communication point of view that we're, we're online a lot more often. But um, yeah, I'm sketching a lot on the iPad. I've experimented with a lot of different apps on that. At the moment, I'm using uh, one called Concepts the most um, because I can underlay, I can bring in a PDF, um, multi-page or one page or whatever and um, and sketch over it. And I've still got layers and stuff like that. So um, that, that's pretty good, yeah, I think. And the other, I actually like for, for knocking out quick things and I like more folios trace as well because it is like throwing more and more, you know, butter paper on top. Uh, do you also use... 3D models to explain to your client or do they see the 3D models? How do they look at the 3D models? We've been using some 3D rendering software lately that's sort of paired up with ArchiCAD uh, Twinmotion. That's, um, that can knock out a good realistic kind of render quite quickly um, and that always helps. But there's something about flying around the space and you know just self-navigating that they can actually do in their own time and get a good feel for it. There's something about that that... Um, yeah, that's quite empowering for the client, I think, to really get a good feel for it. Um, some people mm. can, especially those ones that can't read plans very well, um, you know, and that's that's still quite common. So, um, yeah, they, they need to really get in there and visualize it. Um, yeah, even myself, I need to see 3D sometimes just to visualize it. It's I'm sort of in two minds about it. I like the idea of being able to walk around the house and see the different spaces and also obviously for me see how the landscape interacts but also at the same time I feel like it takes away that magic of when the house is built and you start seeing it all coming together you're really excited because but you know if you've got VR a VR headset you've already seen it so like oh yeah it's already done I already know what it's going to look like. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we had one client who was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this house. It's exactly like you showed me in, in the 3D <laughs> model. So um, so she was stoked that it turned out that way. You know, it was almost like um, you didn't believe us. Um, but, <laughs> but, yeah, I know what you mean. There must have been back in the day when somebody would do a hand drawing. There's very limited drawings and very limited changes because they weren't going to go and scratch it out. Yeah, there'd have to be a lot of um, a lot of trust that uh, you know that that space was going to turn out. It's interesting. Um, I was doing a bit of research recently. We're about to start building our own house soon, and it's um, down in Anglesey, which is on the coast. Um, and I was doing a bit of research. Um, you know, we talk about the right kind of building typology, and and I still, it's. I don't really like much of the new architecture that's that's around down the coast. I think it's um, it's it's a little bit too flamboyant, and I feel people are trying to show off a bit too much. And, and I think by and large those houses are too big um, for what they need to be. So I was doing a bit of research into like the '60s beach shacks that you sort of could go and buy off the plan somewhere and have a bill to build them. So I was doing a bit of research into that and. Um, yeah, there's one, uh, I just came across this um, archive sort of website and, and they, 
they had the the plans or the ads that were in the newspapers and and it was literally just a plan and an elevation or a plan and a and a 3d sketch and people would um yeah people would buy these houses just on a uh without much information at all yeah and even just the dot points of what was included it was just such a simple little brief but people just um didn't ask too much that, that those days they really trusted yeah, yeah, and then also just went maybe too fast. These days, everybody wants to know the color of not just the tile, but what's the grout going to be, and you know, they're invested in every little surface and 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 interface. So um, yeah, it's different. It's a different set of different rule book. Absolutely, and I guess you as are you, you're going to be your own client. Is that right? So you're going to be designing your own house. Uh, it's actually been quite enjoyable. I've, I'm actually having a bit of fun with it. So um, I look forward to, uh, yeah, seeing it take shape. Are you adopting a different process to what you would with your clients? Oh, totally. Um, I, I came up with the first concept and we we both sort of felt that that didn't really suit the site that well. Once we went back out to the site and sat on there, we just didn't feel right. And we talked about what we wanted. The next concept I did was like, yeah, that's it. Let's do it. So it's just it's just gone from there. So um, I think yeah, I've, I've I've sort of overcome that and then got uh, you know more into the detail and into the yeah, I guess the 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 fenestrations and and that sort of stuff. And and yeah, now we're just about to we've got it through planning. So about to get a building permit, and now I'm trying to chase all the trades and uh, get this thing built. Have you had yeah. um, people in the practice also involved in the design or is it just you and Claire? There has been because we are going to go for passive house certification. So um, myself and Tanika, um, she is uh, a passive house designer. So I've had her do the um, the comps on that. Um, yeah, and a couple of the others are working on it as well. So yeah, it's going to be... Um, it's definitely not all about me. I think we'll have a, we'll all have a bit of a fun, a bit of a say in it. So yeah, no, it's it's great that you can be able to bring some of these things that you're learning and bring it back to the practice. I guess with your yeah. own project. Yeah, that's right. All right, so I've got one more question for you before we finish up today. There's, Uh-oh. I guess it would be more about if you were to give a young architect, say an architect's just starting out or you know, they've been working for a little bit and you wanted to give them some advice about something. It could be about communication or explaining things to client. What's one big thing that you've learned that you would like to impart to somebody else? We've interviewed a few people here recently because um, we've hired a new interior designer um, and, a, and a new architect um, recently. So I, I guess my interview questions early on were just quite basic and it was very gut feel about um about somebody but um but to me i think at this point in time i can tell my story about where i am and and that person that we're hiring needs to be on a similar journey at this kind of point in time like it needs needs to be mutually beneficial in in that kind of regards I'm really glad that you mentioned that actually because given that we've just been talking so much about your principles and your values around sustainability and also the ways that you speak to the client and being strong on those values, I think it's important that you obviously have people that are working for you that understand those values. So what sorts of questions are you going to be asking people? 
I'll be asking questions that are quite particular to um, the kind of things that, you know, the kind of person that we, we need within our, within our team. Um, and, you know, from that we'll learn about um, whether they're a good cultural fit or not and so forth. But also I think it's really important for whoever is the job applicant to be able to express themselves in, in that way is to, and, and actually, I don't know if confidence is the right word, but, but be able to express that this is where they think they would like to go or an eight, and maybe nobody knows where they're really going to go long-term. And I, but I think at this point in time, there needs to be that magnetic bond, if you know what I mean, that pull to want to work there rather than just try and try and get the CV out to as many people and see how you go getting a job. To me, the ones that resonate to me are the ones that have approached us more specifically. And there's, there's definitely an alignment there. So, yeah, to me, I think you need to try and find the right kind of place to work in and express that why you're, you would be the right kind of fit for that, that kind of place and, and back yourself on that, you know? Um, and after seeing a few CVs recently, I would definitely write a personalized cover letter as to why that would, why that would be the case. I'm so happy that you brought this up because it's something that I have worked a lot with people recently too. It's about firstly, what do you value? You've got to know what you really value so that yep. you can have these conversations with people and to yep. know how what you value fits with the practice that you're trying to work with. And yep. also, I really also believe in the idea of personalizing your cover letters and trying to make sure that what you value fits to the, the company's values and that somehow you can add even more value to the company as well. Well, I think we've come to the end of our conversation. So thank you very much, James, for sharing everything today, for talking about your values around sustainability, for sharing a little more about your work with Passive House, and then also talking about how you work with the clients and the things that you value around honesty. And then finally, I really appreciated what you shared at the end about how somebody can improve their job searching and their interview skills. I think a lot of people will get a lot of value from this episode. So thank you very much. And I've also learned a lot more about your practice. So thank you. Oh, good to hear. It's more than just pretty pictures. <laughs> sure is. It's way more than pretty pictures. It's so much more than that. So thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks again to James from Alter Eco for taking the time to have this interview with me. It was funny when we did the interview in the background, there were so many noises, so many bird noises, and it was making me feel nostalgic for being in Australia. So I really appreciated having that conversation with him. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please do me a favor and share it with somebody who you think might enjoy this episode. And if you have any questions or you'd like to ask me anything about what you heard in today's episode, you can send me an email to hello at archieenglish.com. And I look forward to sharing my next conversation with you very soon. 